Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 57 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose-aligned and performance-proven leaders. Today, our guest is Fife Simonton IV. Fife is a managing director and visionary behind Copper State Farms, which is currently growing like crazy, pun intended. Prior to starting Copper State Farms, Fife spent 20 years in the commercial agriculture and greenhouse farming industries, growing tomatoes in Mexico. I met Fife over seven years ago as a fellow YPO member, and I'm lucky enough to consider Fife as one of my friends. Fife, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, let's jump right in. Let's start out. I think this will be a little a softball question for you. Let's start out by you giving us a snapshot of where Copper State is today. Number of employees, locations, growth trajectory, those types of things. I just kind of want to hit the high points and then we'll kind of dig into some details. Yeah. Well, um, we are in uh, Copper State started in 2016 with our first harvest in August of 2017. And we are now at uh, just under 800 employees. We have a um, 40 acre greenhouse facility in Snowflake, Arizona, that's fully populated um, with plants. Uh, We own a 150 acre parcel up there. And uh, two weeks ago, I permission from the town of Snowflake basically to build another 40 acres adjacent um, to the current footprint um, covered by the same special use permit. Um, so we have about 400 of the of the 700 employees, almost 400 of them are up in Snowflake. And then we have around um, uh, another 300 or so Phoenix, uh, greater Phoenix area. We have four dispensaries uh, in Phoenix to uh, uh, two in Tempe, one in Sun City. And um, we've really, uh, you know, we started as a, you know, large scale producer um, and wholesaler of cannabis. And then we really kicked our retail into high gear last year. And um, I think we've done a really good job with it. And so we are actively in the market looking um, to acquire other retail licenses so we can expand that retail footprint. Awesome. And congrats on getting the, uh, the, 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 the next 40 acres Ted, speaking of the brands, tell, uh, tell us a little bit about, about the other brands. I think you have soul flower, obviously, uh, what, what other brands are you excited about? You have good things coming. I think, uh, D- DNA genetics is that one. Tell me about some of the other brands that you're excited about. Yeah. So, um, basically, so Copper State is our, our wholesale br- uh, brand. That's basically what we sell bulk flour under um, uh, and distillate to other dispensaries or other manufacturers of uh, products like vape cartridges. And then Soul Flour is the brand of our dispensaries. And so we have a you know, in-house uh, Soul Flour brand. And then um, we rolled out Good Things Coming, which is our edibles line. Um, in uh, in cooperation with uh, Aaron Chamberlain, a, a really well-known chef from the Valley. And, uh, and then we did a deal with a company called DNA Genetics, which is probably the premier breeder of marijuana strains uh, in the world. Um, uh, two guys from California that relocated to Amsterdam 
uh, in the 70s and with the, you know, the advent of legalization in, in California, moved back to California. And um, so we are the exclusive supplier in Arizona of DNA genetics. And we have maybe 10 or 12 of their strains in regular production right now. Um, and uh, I, um, and then just last month, uh, we launched Array, which is our uh, brand of high-end concentrates. We do live resins and rosins, and um, it's been really well received by the market. As a matter of fact, we sell out every week on the on all of our array concentrates. That's awesome. Uh, it's awesome. Um, how how is, is it been difficult uh, while you're growing the cultivation side of things to be developing the retail side? You know, just as equally as fast, or what's been? Uh, has there been, been challenges with growing both sides of the business? You know, it, it's uh, it's funny. You know, in a normal regulatory environment, Copper State Farms would be companies. You know, I mean, if you think about it, we do everything from you know um, cracking seeds, you know, and growing out strains from from seed, um, all the way to packaging brownies, you know, at that facility in Snowflake, and then you know, then you layer on the retail side of that as well, and. Um, and so really Copper State's been a story of, of divide and conquer. And I have really focused all of my activity on the farming side up in Snowflake. And, um, you know, I work in my, my partner, uh, Scott Barker, uh, spends most of his time in Phoenix. And, um, and we've worked really hard to develop a, a team of professionals in the, in the Valley um, that are really retail experts um, uh, to build out the, the, the dispensary side of things. But um, most of what I do have is up in Snowflake in the greenhouse. <laughs> Got it. Hey, and tell me, as I hear your name in the market, as I hear Copper State in the market through other people in the industry, for some reason, and I, I've known you forever, so you're the, you're the greatest guy. But for some reason, everybody wants to hate the big guy. And uh, so they always... They always say, you know, Copper State's the Walmart of the <laughs> cannabis industry. But what would you say to that? Like, how would you position, let's use car brands, for instance, like what kind of car brand would you be or how are you position, positioning yourself in the market? Like, what's the goal? I'm just interested because I always laugh because I know you're such a good guy and I know what a great business you have going, but it just seems like everybody wants to hate the big guy for some reason. So, but just kind of tell me what, how you position yourself yeah. from like, if it was, if you were a car brand, what brands would you be yeah, compared to the rest of the market? Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to produce, uh, the highest quality cannabis I can at the, at the most cost effective price basically is, is, and I don't know if that makes me a GM or not, <laughs> but, but I'm also a disruptor at the same time, you know, um, uh, because I, um, uh, you know, when I got into this, everybody was growing in warehouses, you know, and that is just, that was the way high quality cannabis was grown. And so when I started a greenhouse operation, everybody said, I'll never get the quality um, that you can get at an indoor grow. And, you know, I got up to speed, I got planted and I produced a lot of, you know, the marijuana in the very beginning. I mean, my first harvest in August of 17 was not something to be proud of, <laughs> but, but it was my very first one, you know, 
No, and I'm a tomato grower, you know, so I, um, um, but our story, Copper State story has been one of continuous improvement. So every subsequent um, harvest, we've just gotten better and better and better. And I, I believe, you know, we sell about 15% of our flour now ends up um, as, as top shelf for private reserve. And it goes head to head with, you know, the, the best indoor quality stuff and at indoor quality price points, you know. So um, what's neat about Copper State is, is we run the gamut, you know, I mean, um, as far as we've got, you know, everyday value popcorn that, you know, uh, that uh, a pay can buy at a dispensary and get a lot of value and um, and then we have prepackaged glass you know eighths of DNA top shelf flour that's you know pretty mind-blowing so um, you know I, I don't know what, where that puts us is <laughs> in using the car analogy but um, I, I wanted to be a one-stop shop and basically try to try to serve this entire market and I wanted to make life easier for you know, the, the, the small dispensaries um, that were having trouble sourcing product and um, make it so they didn't have to buy from 15 different companies to, to stock their, their shelves. They can just call Copper State and we pretty much have everything that you would need at every price point. Got it. Oh, thanks for sharing that. What would you say, what is it, tell us firsthand what it means to add those 40 more acres to your facility. Um, so basically, well, as you know, um, we voted in uh, adult use in November and Arizona, um, pr probably in record time, faster than any other state, um, made that conversion happen. Um, and so now anyone that is 21 um, is allowed to go into a dispensary and, uh, and buy cannabis, right? Um, so a year ago today, only in of Arizona was legally allowed to walk into a dispensary. All right. Now anybody can walk into a dispensary. Right. Um, and so you've got, you know, uh, a dramatic increase in demand. Right. And um, no uh, consequent dramatic increase in production. Right. So as as sales continue to build and build, um, prices are just, you know, would go through the roof. Um, uh, Unless, uh, unless you know, a company like Copper State steps up to the plate and increases production, so I, I see, I see the number of consumers for five x, and so we are basically doubling in volume. You know, so there's still plenty of room for other people <laughs> to grow, and I think you know, this thing is going to remain strong for foreseeable future. Um, but uh, you know, this this market needs a lot more. Got it. And let's back up a little bit because we've been talking about a lot of the peaks. Uh, and I want to go back. What were some of the hardest times in getting Copper State off the ground? Because I know there was, the, and we'll, we'll get into it hopefully, but there, there is a lot to this story. Uh, and it seemed like it, you know, yeah. for some people, yeah. it might have been an easy road. But let's, what were some of the hardest times in getting Copper State off the ground for you? Well, um, you know, the, the first major hurdle was um, uh, going to the town of Snowflake and um, convincing them to let me take a 40 acre uh, greenhouse, tomato greenhouse and convert it to cannabis. Yeah. And um, there were a lot of people that um, were, were not happy about it, were uneasy about it, we thought that, um, you know, that it would have negative ramifications for the town. Um, and none of that was helped um, by the fact that there 
there was a, a group of marijuana growers, um, at least one other marijuana grower from Southern Arizona, that uh, basically hired through an attorney, a community organizer from, uh, from Phoenix, sent them up to Snowflake and, and had them sign up a bunch of straw men to file lawsuits against me. Um, they ran negative radio campaigns against me. At one point, they even went all through the town of Snowflake and put door hangers on everybody's door saying that I was a member of the Mexican drug cartel and was going to ruin Snowflake as they knew it, you know. So, um, and, you know, and this is from another cannabis grower, <laughs> right, <laughs> who just didn't want me to get into production up there um, because they knew that I was going to, you know, change the landscape of, of marijuana production in the state. So, um but I, I moved up to Snowflake in the uh, spring of 2016 and, and basically, um, you know, championed this cause. And, uh, you know, I went to, you know, all the planning and zoning committee meetings personally. I went to all the town council meetings personally. I went um, anytime I got a venue where I could tell my side of the story, um, I, I took advantage of that opportunity. So whether it was a rotary breakfast or a chamber of commerce lunch or a parade or this or that, I, I was happy to tell my story. You know, um, I, you know, I'm a fiscally conservative Republican who's been in agriculture my entire you know, career. And I, I promised the town of Snowflake that this was going to be a net positive for the town, that I was going to employ well over 100 people that, you know, a starting wage of $15 an hour, which is more, more money than, you know, any of the hourly jobs anywhere in Snowflake today, you know, it's it more than any of the other employers in town. Um, and over time and getting to tell my story, um, I, you know, slowly uh, gained everyone's faith and, uh, um, the community organizer and the uh, the unscrupulous attorney that were taking pot shots at me, they never actually stood up in front of a crowd. You know, they never got to, they, they never defended their case. They just, you know, um, uh, yeah, would take these cheap shots from the dark. And, um, and so at the end of the day, I got to tell my story. I put my face on the deal and, um, and the town trusted in me to, to do what I said I would do. And, um, and I think uh, now, you can ask anybody, they're very, very pleased. I, I did everything and more that I told them I would do. And it's been a huge uh, boon to the town of Snowflake and Taylor and actually that whole White Mountain region you know, of uh, Navajo County. Oh, I love that story so much. Just knowing you personally, uh, they were, they were, they were messing with the wrong person. Cause you were the most even keeled, like you know, genuine person that I think, uh, it's kind of a story of redemption, which I, I love it. I, I love every, every, all of it. Hey, tell me about the, uh, when was the first time you considered getting into the cannabis industry? I mean, the lunacy. You know, it was uh, 2015 and, um, uh, a, a few years earlier, I had done a, a, a road show with JP Morgan um, as I was trying to sell a vegetable business in Mexico, a greenhouse vegetable operation. And so I, I, I traveled all over the United States and talked to all these different um, uh, funds and private equity funds, uh, family offices, you know, trying to um, trying to sell this deal in Mexico. And as a result, I met um, all kinds of people that invested in agriculture. And in 2015, in, in one week, I got three calls uh, from three different private equity funds asking me if I would consider running a cannabis deal that they were looking at. And um, I laughed at each one of them and um, 
uh, and I, you know, I thought it was kind of silly. It had never occurred to me to get into cannabis. Um, but after the third call, <laughs> I knew something was going on, right? I mean, it's just like the private equity funds move in packs. And if all of a sudden I'm getting calls like that, there, you know, I needed to look into what was actually happening. And so I did a, a deep dive into the industry. And um, the more I got into it, I, I realized that this was um, this budding industry was something that I had been uniquely preparing for, for, for 20 years, you know, that it, um, that with the, the legalization, at least the state legalization of cannabis, it was time to take this crop out of, out of the closet, out of the basement and back into the sunshine. And that there was going to be a, a paradigm shift in the way cannabis was cultivated. And, um, felt like I was, I was the right person, uh, to do that. Uh, and so I, I jumped in. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Hey, uh, what did your, what did your dad say the first time you told him that you're getting into the cannabis industry? It's some, it's a question I've never asked you. And I'm sure people are wondering that'll be listening to this just given the, the history, but I, I'm curious as to what was his reaction, uh, when you told him. So I was, I was pretty nervous about that conversation. Um, so I, because before made the definitive decision to do it. I, I, I had to run it by my parents. I'm just that I'm old school that way, I guess. <laughs> and so I, um, yeah, I took my dad out to lunch and I said, okay, you're not going to believe this, but I, I think I'm going to get into the cannabis business. And he looked at me and I said, you know, I, I, it's all about agriculture. It's just a new crop. You know, the, the Arizona voters have said, this is okay. And, and, um, and I think I should do it. And um, he actually didn't even hesitate. He said, you know, you're absolutely right. You ought to do it. And one of the things, um, you know, uh, my dad was, a, you know, is a, a fiscally conservative Republican as well. But he definitely is on the, the libertarian side of the spectrum when it comes to a lot of the social issues. I mean, he's very much that believes that, you know, people are free and the government shouldn't be telling them what to do all the time. And if if the voters get together and they say cannabis is okay and you know let people use cannabis so um he really uh he was very accepting of it from from the get-go which was great that's awesome and, uh, not not surprised similar conversation with my mom and yeah exactly <laughs> and i had a similar conversation with my mother and she was equally as understanding so they've always been my biggest supporters oh that's awesome <laughs> Tell me, I, you're a very humble person, uh, but I want to tell me a little bit as a leader, what type, what leadership attributes do you uh, attribute a lot of your success to uh, at starting and getting Copper State off the ground and where it is today? You know, uh, I think my greatest strength and my greatest weakness is uh, unbridled optimism. You know, I mean, I, I, um, I, put my mind to do something and I'm going to do it and it's going to work and it's going to be awesome. And that's how I kind of get out of bed every morning is with this feeling like this is going to be a great day and I'm going to kill it. <laughs> and, and I think that, um, that that positive energy and that positive outlook is infectious, you know, that I, you know, going up to Snowflake and talking to the people up there and talking to the, a lot of the former employees that worked for the tomato operation when it was still in business. When I, when I told them my vision, they became, you know, some of my biggest supporters in Snowflake. And a lot of them 
are still working with me today at, at Copper State. So I, I think um, uh, as a leader, I, um, I like to share that vision and I like to share that optimism. And I think people uh, get a sense of my determination and the fact that I'm not going to let anything stand in my way in my goal. And, um, and I think that, uh, that that means a lot to people. You know, and it, it helps them uh, have faith in a company and it, it help, um, helps you get through all of the hard stages and to just keep on pushing ahead, no matter how many setbacks are put in your way. That's awesome. What what accomplishment are you, uh, what one accomplishment are you most proud of? There's a lot that you've been able to uh, do with Copper State so far, but what's the one thing that sticks out the most is the one thing that you're most proud of in building Copper State to where it's at today. And I'm sure you'll have a lot of proud moments in the future, but what's the one thing that sticks out? You know, um, honestly, I think, uh, gosh, there are so many. Um, yeah. Uh, last month when I went to speak at council in Snowflake and um, asking for them to expand my special use permit to include another 40 acres of greenhouses, um, it was a non-controversy. You know, it was a non-issue. It was, uh, um, it passed with flying colors, two or three people in the, uh, uh, in the council chamber. <laughs> and um uh, and nobody said anything against it, right? And if you could contrast that with uh, five years ago, and they had to move the, the town council meetings to the fire department and open up all the doors so that there were literally hundreds of people there. They had to give me a police escort um, by that third meeting because, you know, uh, tempers were running so hot. And uh, uh, that to me is my biggest accomplishment. I mean, I, I just... Um, I was able to persevere, share this vision, get them uh, to have blind faith in me, to give me my first special use permit. And then because of the job that I did and of, you know, being a good corporate citizen and, you know, honoring my word at every step of the way, when I went back to basically double in size, um, nobody even gave it a second thought. It just, it just happened. So. That's awesome. Well, congrats. And uh, knowing you personally, you deserve it. So uh, I'm glad it, it was a little easier this time than the first time around. It was a lot easier. <laughs> what are you What are you working on that gives you the most energy uh, at, these, at, at this point in uh, where you have the company? Um, so I, I love, again, I, I love the greenhouse. I love the farming aspect of it. Um, I love, I get a lot of energy from seeing the plants grow, you know, I mean, actually making a difference on a, on a daily basis. And, um, uh, you know, I guess seeing the fruits of my labor in a way. And so right now I've been really involved in, um, re-envisioning, uh, re-envisioning a lot of our agricultural practices going to increase our yield by, you know, 40% or so off of our existing square footage. And, and for me, that's just, I, I get a lot of, I get a lot of energy from that. It's a, it's a real sense of accomplishment. And especially, you know, in, in the vegetable world, tomatoes, peppers, all that kind of stuff. Um, so many people have been working so long at maximizing yields and efficiencies that if you got a, you know, a two or 3% bump in, in yield per acre, uh, that would be a big deal. 
and it's it's so exciting that in cannabis I, we can actually put things into place that that will increase our yields by 40 percent i mean that's just that's unheard of in the vegetable world and it's pretty exciting in in cannabis you know so you you know as i said when we first started we grew a lot of poor quality <laughs> marijuana and now we have a lot of great quality marijuana and i i guarantee you in another four years it it's we will be light years ahead of where we are today. So that's the, that's the change. And along those lines, the five, well, I, the five years that you've been in cannabis, how, what, what, what advantages did you have from the 20 years of being in, uh, you know, agricultural before and commercial agricultural before, like what things hindsight are you like, wow, I had a, such a huge advantage because of this knowledge base. So um, in the, in the tomato industry, uh, a, a good year growing greenhouse tomatoes, you're going to make eight pennies a pound, eight cents a pound, right? And because of that, it instills a discipline of cost control, of like always, always being focused on on your cost structure, right? And um, one of the things that's been going on in cannabis is that that wholesale price is so high that um, most growers out there tend not to focus on the cost side of the equation and um, can talk themselves into a lot of very expensive purchases or you know things of you know marginal utility um, and uh, and so I think that was a huge advantage from the get-go I went in a copper state saying eventually this product will commoditize and in order to be ready for that we have to start today figuring out how to lower our cost structure so I, that's what that's what we think about every single day is how do we squeeze more costs out of this system you know and we don't it's not uh life or death today but i guarantee you at some point in the future and i don't know if it's five years from now i don't know if it's 10 years from now it it's going to be down to pennies a pound and the person, the company that's ready and geared for it and has put that work, um, who has done that work ahead of time is, is they're going to survive, you know, and they're going to win and thrive. Um, and so I, I thought that was good. Just having that perspective, you know? Yeah. I, I love hearing that. There's not a lot of people yeah. that, uh, have that vision and are ahead of it. Uh, cause most people are afraid of that. So I love that you're just, you know, calling your shot that that's, you know, where it's, where it's headed. And, uh, and it's one thing that people always ask me, we've done a lot of work in cannabis or like, what, what have you learned? And it sounds like the stupidest statement. We've learned that you ha it's hard to grow really high quality cannabis at scale, just like it is every other business when you start doing stuff at scale. So I love your answer, which leads right in kind of to my next question is uh, where do you see the industry going? Like, where do you see uh, and I know you can't predict, but if they deregulate state to state, stuff like that, which we all anticipate probably happening at some point, where do you see that changes the industry uh, for everybody? And where do you see that changes the industry to for an advantage for you? That's a really interesting question, you know, and um, one of the things I like to think about is how, you know, prohibition ended almost 100 years ago. Um, and yet it was only in the last few years that I could order wine from house, right? <laughs> and that there are still, you know, counties in Texas and all of Southeastern United States that are completely dry, right? And um, so just, just because um, 
marijuana is becomes federally legal doesn't mean there's going to be the free flow of cannabis from state to state. You know, we might end up with a, you know, a tiered distribution system like, uh, there's all different forms that that regulation um, can take. And I, I really don't know what it looks like exactly. Um, and I, I know that again, back to the, the cost control argument is I know I can be competitive with anybody, you know, with these, these, these greenhouses in Snowflake are at 6,000 feet. We get unbelievable amount of sunlight. We've got plentiful water and, and we're gonna be able to compete against any state in the US if we have to compete. Um, but I just, I don't know, I don't know when that's going to come. I don't know what it's going to look like when it does. But if you, um, you know, if you look at a state like Massachusetts, for example, right, where you, I mean, that's the worst place in the world to grow cannabis, right? Everything has to be indoors. The electricity costs are through the roof. They've created a huge bureaucracy. I think it's the Cannabis Control Commissioner. So, you know, they've got some acronym. They've got a whole bureaucracy already built up around cannabis. Um, and uh, you know, the cost inputs to, to, to produce it in Massachusetts are through the roof. So, um, and they're taxing the hell out of it. Right. <laughs> so I have a hard time imagining that, you know, one member says, okay, cannabis is legal. And all of a sudden I can send a semi of, of buds to Boston. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's just, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, not in my lifetime. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting though. We'll, we'll see where this goes. The other thing that I have said to people again and again is be careful what you wish for, okay? Because the second that this becomes federally legal, you know, the FDA is gonna be knocking on everybody's door, right? And if we, you know, in, in Arizona, we talk about, you know, all the compliance stuff that Department of Health Services makes us do. Um, that's, it's, it's a piece of cake compared to the requirements that the FDA could, push on all of us. And I guarantee you that any undercapitalized, you know, grow operation, it, there, there's no way they're going to be able to afford the compliance that's going to come with federal regulation of, of cannabis production. It's just uh, uh, costs are going to go through the roof. And, um, and a lot of facilities as they're currently set up would never pass a GMP compliance um, audit. I mean, it just, uh, it's going to, it would be a total. As a matter of fact, I back uh, um, during the early days of the Trump administration, when you know, uh, when Sessions was the uh, was the Attorney General and he was sort of anti-cannabis, and they were all talking about you know different things that they could do or cracking down one way or another on the country. If they had just said, you know what, let's let the FDA regulate it, that would have killed it. <laughs> I mean, it really it would have killed the. It, at least the rate of growth in the cannabis industry, just like that, you know, just with regulation. So, And did you, I know that your company before most, if not all the operations were in Mexico, but did you have to deal a lot with the FDA prior? Um, uh, no, we dealt with the USDA. So we had uh, US Department of Agriculture employees that would actually be stationed at our farm in Mexico. So they would do the inspections and sign off on everything, you know, and all the food safety requirements. All, I mean, there's a whole whole list of things that um, of, of requirements that came about after 9/11 uh, that had to do with bioterrorism, and they they created just an unbelievable you know regulatory bureaucracy around shipping fresh vegetables to the United States. And um, 
uh, and you know, I saw it in Mexico, all the small farms, they couldn't afford um, what it would take to ma maintain compliance with USDA regulations. And so all those kind of rules just forced consolidation and forced farms to be bigger and bigger if they wanted to be competitive. And the same thing will happen in cannabis. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. I love how, how it's just matter of fact for you. I think, again, it's one of those things where I think a lot of people are putting their head in the sand, like hoping that it doesn't happen, but it's <laughs> inevitably probably going to happen. You're absolutely right. Now, let me, and now, I'm going gonna, gonna to switch gears a little bit. What in, on, the, on the hiring side, which is a little bit near and dear to our, our heart, what are the biggest learning lessons that you've had in, as it relates to hiring talent uh, for, for your company and into the cannabis industry, uh, so far? So in the, in the beginning, it was, it was really hard to find, um, seasoned executives, uh, that wanted to take the reputational risk of getting into the cannabis space. That was, um, there was still enough of a stigma. Nobody knew if these businesses were going to last and the idea of, you know, uh, leaving one career, doing a stint for a cannabis company, and then trying to go back to a regular, you know, consumer packaged good company or something like that. It just, people didn't want to take that risk at all. Um, and I, that has dramatically changed now. I think that the, the number of people willing to um, take a look at uh, getting involved in this industry has increased. Um, that, uh, that's one positive. The negative is, you know, there's been such explosive growth in this industry um, that it's um, everybody's fighting for this same pool of, of candidates. You know, it, it, it's it's really hard to find um, uh, to find good people because they, they get snapped up fast. <laughs> and I bet you see that a ton in your business, too. Don't you oh, say? we see it a ton. We feel like we're seasoned vets because we've been in the industry for five years. And I was on a panel, the LA normal panel, which is, uh, you know, they're fighting for a lot of legislative things. And, uh, I'm on the panel with guys that are right. talking about smoking joints and getting arrested in front of the white house in the 1960s. So I'm sitting here laughing to myself. Like I thought we were kind of in early, like, <laughs> these guys have been fighting for this for a long time and bless their souls. Cause they're finally yeah. getting what they really, really have been fighting for forever. <laughs> And I thought we'd been in for a long time. We're in for five years. So it was a, a very humbling uh, experience <laughs> to be on that panel. What do you think from an uh, interview question standpoint, What do you is there an interview question that you think uh, you should uh, ask everybody getting into the cannabis industry, regardless of the position? Um, oh, I'm sorry, asking a candidate? Yeah, like every so. Or, yeah, when you're when you're interviewing somebody, uh, is there a particular interview mm -hmm. question that you think is relevant for every uh, every candidate, regardless of position? Um, you know, how, how do you handle stress? <laughs> or um, you know, the when I first started getting into cannabis and doing my research, I found a friend up in Canada that had been um, had been doing it for a year and. Um, he he warned me from the get-go he said you have to understand in the cannabis industry we live in dog years one year goes by for everybody else and we live seven and and it's never truer words were spoken and so i think when you're looking for a candidate um you got to make sure that people are prepared for 
or that kind of fast-paced startup environment that they have an intense sense of urgency because it just moves so fast. And if you're looking for a more corporate job that's you're doing the same thing day in, day out, and you don't like change, you don't want to be involved in this industry. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little more on the personal side, which is where we like to go uh, on our podcast. Uh, but what were the, what were, and I've never asked you this, I've known you for a long time, but growing up, what were the advantages and disadvantages of having your dad as the governor? So, you know, uh, what's interesting in Arizona, most of the time that my father was governor. So I, um, uh, I went away to boarding school for high school and I was on the East coast in college, uh, when he was elected. And then right after college, I moved to Mexico and, and lived there for, uh, two and a half years. So, um, I was only, you know, in Arizona for probably about a year or so while he was governor. Um, and as opposed to, I'm the oldest of five kids as, so as opposed to my younger siblings, a lot of them were here the whole time and had more of a, a ringside seat, if you will, <laughs> to the chaos of politics. Um, and I, uh, you know, it, it was kind of a, a double-edged sword, you know, you, it, um, just because of of uh, the fact that, that my father was governor, it meant that I could get access to um, uh, a lot of people. I mean, if I wanted to, um, you know, learn about something, I could, I could pick up the phone and call somebody and, and most people would return my call, <laughs> right? Um, the, the flip side was, you know, uh, they always seemed, well, not everybody, but um, people have agendas and they were always kind of, I, I felt like a lot of the times I was just a tool to uh, being used as a tool to, to get to my father at the same time. And so, um, yeah, it just, it, uh, it was interesting and something you and, and learn how to, how to deal with. So you're in the limelight all the time, whether you like it or not, you know, everything, people are watching you, whatever you do. And, and more so now with social media, the way it is, I mean, I feel, I feel personally badly for, you know, the family members of politicians, the kids of politicians, just because they, they, you know, they have no privacy and, uh, it's, it's sad, really. You know, you don't get to just be a kid anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, for those of you guys listening, we've had internet issues the entire time. Fife is the best sport ever. So we have like a little bit of a delay going back and forth. So you've been doing incredible by, you know, waiting it out and going back and forth. But I just want everybody to know I've never actually had to deal with it. So we're running with it. But I was going to say, uh, my, I named my son Maxwell, not because <laughs> I wanted him to be a junior. But once I had, uh, the one thing you really do, uh, you have to trust your son when you give them the same name because they could ruin your credit very, very easily. So your dad very much trusted you by giving you a name just like his. Uh, so the, the, other, the other thing I want to jump into is uh, what do you spend most of your time outside doing, uh, outside of building Copper State? I mean, I've hiked Camelback and almost every single time I used to see you out there. So I know that you like to hike, but outside of work, what do you do uh, to stay busy? And, and what are you into? Well, I, um, I have three kids uh, that they are 18, 16 and 14. And so um, that keeps me very busy. I spend a lot of time with them. And then I, I'm, I, I am a passionate hiker. I really, uh, uh, I hike almost every day out in the, uh, you know, the Squaw Peak Preserve area. 
Um, and then I'd say twice a month or so, I get out into somewhere in rural Arizona and do, you know, do a really long hike out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and I love it. It just recharges my batteries. And um, I, uh, I think we've talked about it before, but I, you know, I, I, I hike the Arizona trail in both directions, which goes from Mexico to Utah. And um, so that was 1600 miles round trip. About eight years of uh, one weekend a month, you know, driving out to the middle of nowhere and doing a 25 mile out and back hike. <laughs> <laughs> but it allowed me to see all, all parts of the state of Arizona. And as I was making my way um, uh, north to south, I kind of took note of some of these other areas that the Arizona Trail didn't that I, that I really wanted to get back to and explore. So that's uh, that's kind of what that that is my favorite thing. I'm not a golfer. I'm a high. <laughs> I love that. What about uh, favorite like daily routines and <laughs> rituals that that you feel uh have helped you be successful at, at, at work, at life, at being a dad, at being a husband, like what things do you do regularly? It typically, I don't even, I don't even directly ask this question, but somehow we always get into this conversation. So now I've just started to make sure I ask it because the listeners, I think like hearing, uh, from people that have seen some success on what they do regularly for daily routines and rituals. Yeah. Well, I, um, uh, Part of it gets back to the hiking. I get, I get up at 5 a.m. every single day and I'm out on the trail by 5.30, you know, and if I need to wear a headlamp, you know, during the wintertime, that's what I'm doing. And I get a good hour in and um, at minimum. And uh, that is my clearest thinking time of the day. I, I, I use that time almost, it's not really quite meditation. It's more thinking about the different things that I wish that day and how I'm about to, how I'm going to go about it. And I find that really helpful. Um, the the other thing I do is I, I carry around, it's kind of a joke in the company, um, but I carry around a notepad all the time and it's with a list. And I have um, keep a list of it, all the tasks that I'm going to do that day. And I cross them out when, uh, when I'm done. And I usually have, if you flip in the notebook, it, it goes day by day and I have different things I'm going to accomplish on each day. And, um, at the end of the day, I hate it when I have to take things off today's list and put it on tomorrow's list. <laughs> and it's my sort of incentive to make sure that I get everything accomplished that I set out for myself uh, that day. So, um, but I find it is a great tool to make sure I'm making that forward progress that I need to. That's awesome. And if you're going to give someone personal advice and that, that might be it, but if, if there's something else, let me know. If you're going to give somebody personal advice, how to change their life right. for the better, what would you tell them? There's your list. <laughs> Keep a list. Oh, change your life for the better. Yeah, that was, a, that was my list. I even had special Copper State pads made up. See that? It says Copper State on top. So. <laughs> um, oh, man. That's a tough question, Max. Let me think about that. You know, how would you change your life for the better? I, I, you know, I, dream big. I mean, and then, and then push for your goal, right? It, uh, um, you know, there are only so many hours in the day and that's um, all you're going to work. And so you might as well be pushing yourself to um, to do whatever you can, you know, um, uh, that is going to be um, satisfying, that really, that you're pushing yourself to accomplish whatever you can each and every day. 
Did I lose you there? No, no, you're good. I, I turned off my I turned off my video just oh. to see if it would help clear up the audio. You're you're oh you're such a good sport that we're working through this. So thank you. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Next time I should just come to your office and we could do it there. I know we could have both just sit in the same room, but what about um what about a yeah. motto that you live your life by? Is there some sort of motto that you live your life by? Um you know, nothing is difficult to him who wills, you know, set your mind to it and get it done. I love it. That makes a lot of sense for you. And tell me about, uh, is there an experience that changed your life that, that, that you remember vividly? Um, I, uh, so I had had a lot of jobs, uh, during, you know, I worked every summer starting when I was 16 and, um, and then after college, I moved to Mexico, um, did a total immersion program and um, uh, lived with a Mexican family in Cuernavaca, south of Mexico City, and um, became fluent in Spanish. And after six months there, I was hired into a management training program for a big uh, glass manufacturing company called Vitro in uh, Monterey, Mexico. And uh, it was a great program and Vitro was a great company uh, largest yeah, glass bottle manufacturer in all of Latin America. Um, but I realized in that experience that I just couldn't stand being a cog in a wheel, you know, that I, 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 I couldn't work for anybody else. I had to be in boss. And, um, and even if the path was a lot longer and a lot bumpier, um, than working within a corporation that I just, I had to do it on my own. Um, and it was a valuable lesson and I learned it, you know, at a very young age and, uh, I'm glad I did. Oh, that's great. What is, uh, what is one thing you wish people would stop saying? Uh, I, you know what, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. It gets back to my optimism. You know, I'm, I'm happy with everything. So. Got it. And then what Except uh, that maybe, you know, Walmart a weed, I guess, you know, <laughs> I don't think that's how it was. I, I'm trying to summarize. There was a, a handful of people that every time I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm friends with Fife. And every time I bring up Copper State, it's something in that vein. I probably am not paraphrasing it right, but it's been something in that vein where I think it's just more yeah. that people like to, to hate on the big player that they see that is, uh, you know, stepping up and, and doing some big things. But, uh, um, tell me about, uh, obviously we're well yeah. through COVID now, nope. but, but I like talking about, I think everybody has, you know, COVID blessings, like things that, that help them, uh, you know, they, they were, did things that, uh, uh, that they weren't able to prior, or there are good things that were taken away from COVID. Uh, how about you? Is there anything that you have positively taken away from COVID? Uh, you know, I, um, uh, was very lucky during COVID and that I didn't have any, anyone that suffered in any bad, bad way from it. Uh, my wife had it, um, parents had it, but everyone, you know, was really, they were just very mild cases. And, um, so I, you know, I definitely have a different view on, um, on the experience. My two oldest, um, kids had gone away to boarding school all on their own volition. I didn't send them away. And, um, because of COVID school was canceled and they came home. And, and so, um, it was, 
we really had a lot of fun as a family. Um, I thought that, you know, my oldest two were gone and, you know, and then they were going to go to college and, you know, that those sort of family times were never, I was never going to get those back again. And all of a sudden we got another year of it. And um, uh, so I had all three kids at home and we would have family dinners every night and family movie night, game night. And, um, you know, we, uh, we made the most of being together. I mean, I, I think my two older teenagers were, were going stir crazy and they didn't like it as much as my wife and I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we really enjoyed the time of, of being together as a family again. And, um, and it also, I think, uh, the pace of life just slowed, slowed down. And my biggest takeaway, I guess, actually, now that I think about it was I used to travel all the time and, um, and then it came to stop. And I gotta say, I, I love not traveling. I mean, I am, uh, um, I had made a vow that I am not going to get going the, the way that I used to. You know, I, um, I used to go back to New York, let's say, once a quarter for a board meeting. And a lot of the times they'd be, you know, 36 hour trips. And that's pretty miserable if you think about the amount of time on the plane versus the actual amount of time in the city. And um, I still, I love New York, but instead of, you know, going back four times a year, I think I'll go back once a year and stay for a week and do the other three meetings via zoom. You know, I just, uh, if I'm going to travel somewhere now, I want to go and stay there, you know? And, um, yeah. And if it can easily be done by zoom, I'd, I'd rather do it by zoom and stay home. So I love it. I love it. I don't not think good that, news for the, yeah. I don't think you're not alone. good news for the airline. <laughs> they, they, I did see their stock prices dipping today a little bit. So they, that tip might've just dipped them a little bit more. Uh, you, yeah. have, do you feel like you, this is kind of a uh, random question, but do you feel like you found your purpose with Copper State? That I found what with Copper State? Do you feel Sorry. like you found, yeah. You, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Do you feel like you found your purpose in, in kind of your business life with Copper State? I do. I do. I am, I am so much happier uh, professionally with Copper State than I've ever been in my entire life. You know, I um I loved what I did in Mexico, but I look back on it now and I spent one week a month in Mexico for 15 years in a row. And um, I didn't realize how burned out I was and and, and how difficult it was and um, all the cross-border stuff, um, the complexities of, you know, different, of just dealing with a different country. Um, and, and what a, you know, what a low margin, tough business vegetables were, you know, and then, um, you know, with Copper State, I got the ability to, you know, to breathe life, uh, new economic life into a small town in rural Arizona. And, you know, and I, I love, I love rural Arizona. I've spent, spent a lot of time all over the state and it's just been, it's been incredibly fulfilling um, to grow a company like this, to scale it up this way. Um, and I love the fact it's all right here in Arizona. I mean, it, it literally, um, all the customers are in the greater Phoenix area and the farms and snowflake, you know, and I don't have to get on a plane to do anything. It's been wonderful. Oh, really that's has. awesome. You couldn't, you couldn't write a better story. You're absolutely right. How many jobs now up there? So you said there's uh, 400 people that work up in snowflake at that facility right now. Yeah. Right, right around 400 in snowflake and then 300 down here in the Valley. And how many more do you anticipate up in Snowflake? I mean, that's got to be the, what there's 6,000 people in Snowflake. So um, that's a good portion of the, their town. There are. 
Yeah. Well, and people come from all over, you know, Taylor, Sholo, uh, uh, Holbrook, Heber. Um, they, they drive in from all over the place. But I think that um, we'll be looking at uh, hiring another 150 or so um, over the next uh, year to two years in Snowflake. And then, you know, as we find more dispensaries, we'll, we'll hire more in Phoenix as well. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm going to try, I'm going to drop in. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Well, tr- since we have a little bit of a delay, this might be a little bit more difficult than usual, but like I said, you've been an incredible sport uh, sticking with this conversation because having a uh, <laughs> recording a podcast with a little bit of delay is a lot more challenging than I thought. I probably would abandon this uh, earlier and, and said, Hey, let's do this another day, but we're, we're at the very close to the very end. And we like to go through some rapid fire questions just short answers are great. Like I said, it might be a little bit harder because of the delay, but uh, we call it kind of a rapid fire question uh, uh, kind of section of our, the end of our podcast. Um, But what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Uh, uh, (laughs) Put on my exercise clothes. (laughs) (laughs) To go hiking. Yeah. (laughs) And then what, what's your favorite book or book that you've read more than once? Oh man, I, uh, uh, I'm an avid reader and I, I absolutely love, uh, Neil Stevenson and he's sort of a, a, a futurist writer and, uh, it's a little esoteric a book called Cryptonomicon that I absolutely love. It is, it is, uh, brilliant. It's funny. Um, and it also really predicted the whole advent of cryptocurrencies. Um, and, you know, and he, and he wrote it 20 some years ago. It's amazing. I, what, I highly recommend Cryptonomicon. I, yeah. I'll have to read it, especially with what's going on now. What, what is your favorite? Uh, He's a great sci-fi writer. Yeah. What is your favorite band? I love ACDC. <laughs> what person has had the greatest impact on your life? That's a, that's a really tough one. I have been blessed with two amazing, uh, fathers, my dad and my stepfather, and they both have had an enormous impact on me and the, you know, um, and the person that I've become. So, and they have two really different backgrounds. And, um, and I think that, you know, the juxtaposition between the two of them, I, I really got the best of both worlds. So my dad's awesome. What is something that you're, uh, waiting to check off your bucket list? I have um, never been to Australia. I would really like to go to Australia. The next time I kind of bite the bullet and get on an airplane, that's where I would like to go. And I'd love to go and spend a month. You know? <laughs> well, hopefully that will be soon. I hope so. <laughs> if you could teach uh, one subject to school children, what would it be? Economics. Basic economics. If you could change this. I, I feel like things is really lacking. I, I agree. I Whoops. agree. I think it's cut out there. So I'm not sure I answered the right question. No, you got it. You got it. I, I asked what would the, uh, what, if you could teach one subject to school children, what would it be? I think economics is great. And I, I'll end with this, this last question. If you yeah. could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> that's a hard question, man. <laughs> I know. I, I, um, I, it is a hard one. It is a hard one. Yeah. One thing about the world, um, I don't know. I guess bring some sanity to global COVID policies. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, I love it. 
Well, Fife, you've been amazing. This has been awesome. I love your story. Uh, you're, I'm a big fan of, of you personally, professionally. Um, I wish you guys the best of luck. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. You've shared a lot of stuff that I think the listeners will love. Well, thank you very much. It's hard to be on the show. And I think the world of you too. And I look forward to getting together sometime soon. Awesome. Without a delay. (laughs) Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Scouts. You can find all of our past content and future podcasts at Scouts.com. Thanks a lot, Fife. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 right here on Star Worldwide Networks or wherever you get your podcasts. 